Welcome everyone. Nice to see everybody here tonight. So I've been talking about right effort as part of samadhi practice in the way the Buddha talked about a wholesome spiritual endeavor. He talked about it in terms of bringing awareness into three places in our life. So we're bringing our attention and our awareness into our understanding, something we don't normally think of paying attention to. We take our understanding as a given. But part of our practice is actually to look at the understanding and to see whether there is a fit between how we understand the world, how we view things, and how our, our and what our experience is telling us. Is there an alignment there? So that's what we talked about in, in January and February. And then in the spring and early summer, we are talking about sila, which is bringing awareness in our act, into our actions, into our relationships and interactions. And uh, just seeing whether the quality of our relations is in alignment with our understanding and our deeper, deepest aspirations and, and whether our actions lead to happiness or not. So it makes sense we'd want to pay attention at that level. And now more recently, I've been talking about samadhi, which is the third part of the Buddha's path that he offered, suggested that human beings look into. And this third part is uh, bringing awareness into the mind, the quality of the mind, or we could say heart. Heart and mind are uh, interchange interchangeable and the way that the Buddha used the word citta. So this heart-mind, what is the quality of it? What is it colored by right now? What kinds of thoughts and emotions? What sort of filters do we have? And are they wholesome or are they unwholesome? So this is another place to bring awareness. So we bring awareness in terms of our understanding or view, in terms of our actions, and in terms of watching, observing, being open to how the mind is. And in particular, noticing the skillfulness or unskillfulness of what's present in the mind or in the heart. And so when we talk about right effort, it's a very technical, in a way, it's a very technical term that's pointing us to what kind of effort do we make to take responsibility or to um, to act out our intention to keep the mind wholesome what is the what is skillful effort that leads to the moving beyond the unwholesome mind states and the cultivation of the wholesome and this is a very I think a very tricky area because it's very easy to slide into this way of thinking of good and bad, good versus bad, or oh, that's a bad thought, or that's a good thought. Bad thoughts we should slap around, <laughs> you know, and good thoughts, you know, we want to put them in our treasure chest somewhere, lock them up so they don't go away. And that strategy doesn't work. It's What it leads to, of course, is a lot of judgment or arrogance or something that's not so wholesome. So as a way to uh, 
work with right effort, like almost everything in spiritual life, it has to be infused with wisdom. And we only have the wisdom that we have, but we want to bring out whatever understanding or wisdom that we have. So in this case, with effort, we want to bring that wisdom into the kind of effort we make. And one way to understand wisdom from a Buddhist perspective is a deepening understanding of causality, of how things come to be and how things pass away. So then, if our effort is in alignment with that, then we're making effort to support the coming into being of things that are wholesome and the passing away of things that are unwholesome. And we simply want to observe how that is in our life. Like, how, how does kindness come into our mind? And how is kindness maintained once it's in our mind and heart? How does aversion or greediness come in? And how does it get supported and, and maintained? Because those are good things to know so that we, we aren't uh, blind in a way. You know, it's like, I don't know if the Buddha said it, said it exactly this way, but in so many words and, so, and many, many times, he basically said, We're, we are swimming in a world of karma, of causality or conditionality. That is the best way of describing our situation. And so then, as human beings interested in not suffering, we have to understand that this is how it works. Even if we don't want it to be this way, it actually is this way. And so it makes sense. We all have an incentive to start to, to understand this conditioned nature of our minds, of our circumstances, of all things. And as best we can, understand it so that we can uh, be part of this game or part of this lawfulness, not simply feeling helpless or reactive to it, like uh, feeling a victim to conditionality. How can we participate? How does a human being participate in a world of cause and effect? It kind of, you know, I don't know about you, but in college, we like to stay up late at night and talk about whether there was free will or not. <laughs> at least a few people that were willing to argue with me. <laughs> and, uh, but it, it, this is the, it's such an important question as a human being. Like, where do we have, as an ego, where do we have some power to affect our lives? Where are we spinning our wheels, applying our will in a way that isn't having any positive, wholesome effect? And where can we apply ourselves in a way that does have an, a wholesome effect? So this is, this is the area of right effort. And I uh, handed out a sheet. And if you didn't get it last week, if you weren't here last week, you can get one tonight. Uh, maybe someone can put it at the back of the room before everybody leaves and on this sheet there are the four exertions and this is just a model to help us understand where the Buddha suggests we um, bring our awareness how we apply right effort and so in the last couple of weeks I've been talking about preventing unwholesome mind states from arising as one of the four ways we try to apply right effort 
And as I mentioned in the guided sit tonight, it's a very particular kind of effort. It's an effort that's infused with deep, deepening wisdom. Without wisdom, effort isn't very useful. It has to have wisdom involved. And so, in terms of preventing unwholesome states from coming into the heart, coming into the mind, without wisdom, it would seem appropriate to defend ourselves from the unwholesome mind states. But that's a pretty inefficient strategy to somehow wall ourselves, you know, to create this wall between me, my heart rather, and all those unwholesome tendencies I have. And uh, so suppression is not a very efficient strategy. So what the Buddha says to prevent is to use our wisdom, our, our wisdom mindfulness, or this clear seeing, not to be deluded by the pleasantness and unpleasantness of arising states, whether it's a physical state that's arising in the moment or an un, uh, a mental state that's arising in the moment. But whatever it is, mental or physical, something happens, right? An experience arises in the moment, and almost all experiences have some quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness associated with them, and they arise. And if we're not being mindful, if we're not making this particular effort, the first exertion, then when that pleasantness arises with that experience, we get deluded, and we, out of habit, try to hold on to something that can't be held on to. Because all of life, all experience, mental or physical, is in flux. So it doesn't do any good to try to hold on to it. It's just more tension, more stress. Same with unpleasant. We try to push it away. But that itself is stressful, trying to fight or, or push away what's unpleasant. So instead what we do is we try to see pleasantness is like this or unpleasantness is like this and not react to it. And we let the pleasantness bloom and it passes away when it's ready to pass away. When the conditions that are supporting that pleasant experience aren't there anymore, then the pleasantness goes away. And when the unpleasantness arises, we try to feel the unpleasantness, see it as it actually is. And we see it blooms, it gets big. And then eventually, when the supporting conditions aren't there, it goes away. So if we stub our toe, if we're mindful, we see that pain, that throbbing bloom, and the unpleasantness of that throbbing bloom, it gets really big, and then it passes away in time. And if we defend ourselves or react to the unpleasantness, we create suffering or stress. So this is how we guard the mind. It's not that we remove ourselves from life, from life, but we practice not being deluded by the pleasantness and the unpleasantness of experience. That allows us to stay really intimate with life, really close. But when we're not mindful, then we get confused by the pleasantness and unpleasantness. It triggers our habit energy, and we just act out in a very predictable way you know, with pleasant and with unpleasant. And we're not really there anymore. We're kind of lost in our habit. Now, starting last week and now this week and maybe part, you know, you might want to continue this practice for another week or forever, 
is the second exertion. So the first one is about preventing unwholesome states from arising. The ones that aren't already in our mind, how do we keep them from coming in to the heart-mind? And the other is, the second exertion is, once we are caught up in one of the unwholesome states, and you remember the five unwholesome states that one way the Buddha talks about them? The five hindrances? Anybody want to show off? <laughs> tell us what the five hindrances are? Okay. Aversion. Aversion. Clinging. Well, you can ask for help. Uh huh, Maria. Uh huh. Well, she said doubt, a doubt, and uh, restlessness. Yeah, restlessness and worry. And she, you, you said clinging, which is okay, but uh, probably craving is a better word because sometimes clinging, just in the way we use the the language, clinging we use for sort of all of the defilements because in a way there's a. a uh, an identification or a clinging involved with any sort of suffering, any self, uh, any self-centered suffering. There's a clinging involved, but it, craving has it sort of is symbolic of all of them, and that's why it's sometimes used. Clinging is sometimes used for craving. So we have craving and aversion, and that's a pair that makes it easy to remember. Dullness and restlessness, which is a pair, and skeptical doubt. So those are the five. Now, we could just say that there's only one hindrance, which is self-centered thinking or self-centered, uh, self-centeredness or self-centered thinking. Or you could break it into, into three. You know, you have aversion and craving and delusion. So that's another way the, the Buddha talked about the defilements in a group of three. And then delusion here, in terms of the five hindrances, one of the ways delusion manifests is dullness, restlessness, and skeptical doubt. So that's just one way to, to think about them. So you can think about it as self-centered thinking, greed, anger, and delusion, or greed, hatred, and delusion, or the five, craving or greed, aversion, restlessness, uh, dullness, and skeptical doubt. So when we're caught up in one of these five states, how is it that we can abandon how do we skillfully relate to being caught up in one of these five mind states, heart states? And just as a bit of encouragement, I love this one uh, part of the discourses where the Buddha talks about these four exertions. So this, this is the four ways we should practice making effort, preventing unwholesome states from coming in, abandoning unwholesome states that are already present, developing wholesome states that aren't present, and maintaining the wholesome states that are present. And he says, if you do that, then just as the river Ganges flows to the east, slopes to the east, inclines to the east, in the same way, when a practitioner develops and pursues the four right exertions, she flows to unbinding, slopes to unbinding, inclines to unbinding, the unbinding of stress or suffering. So nibbana or freedom. So I like that image. Isn't that nice? You know, just as it, it is, a river will inevitably flow downstream. You know, it goes downhill. You can't stop a river from going downhill. I mean, you may be able to prevent it for a period of time, but eventually water flows downhill.
And uh, I like that, like if we just concentrate on these four exertions, these four efforts, then our life, we don't have to worry about when or how the heart-mind gets free. We just make these efforts and we'll just find that our life moves in the right direction. It moves towards freedom instead of being more bound up, more burdened by life. So, we need to abandon what is unskillful. And the Buddha said, I wouldn't ask you to abandon what is unskillful if it weren't possible to abandon what is unskillful. But it is possible to abandon what is unskillful, so please, abandon what is unskillful. He goes on and on. So, how do we do that? Well, there's a nice discourse that I thought I'd share part of tonight where the Buddha addresses exactly this. Sometimes the sutta is translated as um, the removal of distracting thoughts and Tanisro Bhikkhu, or Tanja, as some people who know him call him, he calls, he translates the title of this discourse, The Relaxation of Thoughts. The Blessed One said, when a practitioner is intent on the heightened mind, or we could say the quiet mind or the purified mind, the mind empty of these defilements. There are five themes she should attend to at the appropriate times. What five? There is the case where unskillful thoughts connected with desire, aversion, or delusion. So he's using the three division for what's unwholesome. So thoughts with desire, aversion, or delusion arise in a practitioner while she is referring to or attending to a particular theme. She should attend to another theme apart from that one connected with what is skillful. So the Buddha is going to give us five strategies, and this is listed on the sheet. If you didn't get it last week, you can get it at the end of tonight. And I, I have sort of the, a word or a couple words to remind us of each of these five strategies. These strategies are to be used when we notice there's unwholesome mind state, and just the noticing of it isn't a, a cause for it to pass away. Right? So the first thing is just to notice it, to completely open to it as best we can. And it will either pass away or it won't. So if it doesn't pass away, so there we are at work, and all of a sudden, because we've been practicing, we have a moment of mindfulness. And we just notice, I'm at work, and I'm really angry at my boss, or really irritated with my colleague. So we have that moment where we feel it, and we notice we're irritated or angry. And it feels like we're open. Right? It always feels like we're open. That's part of our delusion. We always think we're being mindful. <laughs> but So we, we're there, but it's not going away. Well, actually, this is, a, this is nice to know. If things aren't arising and passing quickly, it generally means we're not being very mindful. Because, because generally, when we're really mindful, we see how everything is arising and passing. It doesn't mean that the, what's just passed away won't arise again in the next moment. But we actually see it passing away and coming back and passing away. So there's a real fluidity or flux in our experience when we're mindful. So if it's not that way, if there's anger and it's not going anywhere, it feels solid and real and like it's mine, then 
we have we begin with these strategies, and the Buddha set them up from the most efficient to the least efficient strategy. So of course we start with the most efficient. So if mindfulness, just being open, isn't isn't enough, we do exactly what I just read, which is a person would attend to another theme apart from that one, connected with what is skillful. And I mentioned last week, and we can do this now. So as I uh, give you some instructions here, you might just think about some afflicted state, some unwholesome mind state that you work with that's part of your life that comes up often for you, maybe even today in a strong way. Because these ways of working, these five strategies, it's actually good to practice them before we're really caught up. You know, instead of waiting until we're in the fire to figure out how to put out a fire, it's actually good to practice putting out fires before we're caught in the middle of a fire. So if you bring to mind a situation maybe where you had some anger or you had some lust or some caught in, in some very seductive fantasy about what you want for yourself, what kind of job, what kind of success, what kind of recognition you want, so some kind of craving, or any of the five hindrances. And so the Buddha suggests we substitute the opposite. And so the image he uses like a peg, and I mentioned this last week, just like you'd use a small, solid peg to drive out an old, rotten peg, so in the same way we could take a wholesome thought the opposite thought of the unwholesome thought and place it into the mind firmly with wholehearted devotion. We put it into the mind. So, for example, if we're caught in some kind of craving, which came to mind as I was reflecting about this talk, it's it's easy when when we're attached, like, if only this, I'd be happy. It's easy to bring in the part of the truth that's missing. So what's wholesome here is to bring in the opposite. So when we are sort of seen through a, a rosy lens where everything that we're looking at in this particular ob- with this particular object looks really attractive, we can consciously bring in some of the other facts. So if you're attracted to another person, you might bring in other facts that your mind isn't attending to like the fact that this person isn't always going to be this way. You know, when we see a person that we're attracted to, often we we immediately stop seeing the person and we're caught in the concept of who that person might be, how lovely he is or she is, how wonderful it would be to be with that person. Same thing with a car. You know, we don't see the fact that the car is going to get dented and get old and need to go to the repair store. What we see is this perfect car that will never change. That's the feeling we have. It's the same with a a career change. You know, we think, oh, getting the recognition or getting the job. But we we don't also bring in the added responsibility, the extra headaches that that job will entail and on and on with all of our cravings. So the way the peg we drive in to undercut attachment, identification with craving, is we're bringing in the truth that isn't already there. You know, we're bringing in the whole truth. Like 
in general, that means bringing in impermanence. Like, how does impermanence relate to whatever it is we're attached to and clinging to and craving? How does bringing in the truth of impermanence change the way we relate to this object? Or the unattractive parts that we're not seeing. We're just focusing, obsessing on the attractive parts, the things that we are attracted to. So bringing in the parts that we're not paying attention to, the parts that aren't as attractive, and and then include them. And it actually changes very quickly how we're relating. There's a funny story from the discourses where a monk was practicing and he was walking, getting his arms around. And in the village, a wife had finally gotten fed up with her husband. Uh, I guess they didn't have a healthy relationship for whatever reason. And uh, she dressed up because uh, oftentimes at that, in those, maybe even today, the women's wealth was uh, in her jewelry and her, you know, clothing, the sari, the expensive sari. So she put on her best stuff, her best jewelry, and took off. And uh, the husband, of course, wanted her back and went looking for her. And as he passed this monk on the road, he asked if he saw this attractive woman, you know, my wife. And uh, the monk said uh, something like, "I know I didn't see." you know, a young, beautiful woman. But I did see, you know, and he, he said something like, I did see teeth. Or you can just substitute whatever for you wouldn't be that attractive. So that this is a way that we can relate when we find ourselves, like especially if you're working with someone that you're really attracted to. And you find yourself, the mind, because the mind likes attractive things, that's our habit, the mind is going to want to look or imagine the parts that we like. Or if uh, it might be, imagine the parts in the, in the sense of the story, you know, that he would do this, or she would do this, or say this to me, or treat me this way. So it might be sort of imagining the, you know, the parts of the physical body that we like, which may be more of a male thing, or liking more the sort of how the interactive part of the relationship which I think, I think they've actually done psychological studies where they, they talk about how they've discovered how men sort of, uh, how their attraction works and how generally, and this is stereotypic, but how for females it's different. It's not the same. The, the way that the obsessing and the quality of attraction is fed is different between the sexes, at least often it is. So we can break that cycle by uh, very intentionally doing something that's not feeding the attraction. So you can experiment with that. And you can experiment with that right now with attraction or with desire, with craving. So just think about something in your life that you're really attracted to, whether it's a future or another person a body for yourself that you'd like. And then somehow bring in impermanence with, you know, you know your kind of particular way of obsessing. Get that going for a few seconds and then bring in impermanence. So let's just take a a minute or so of silence.
bring in the facts that you tend to exclude when you're obsessing with attraction. Questions about that strategy? Mm-hmm. That's cognitively what? It's a really good question. And remember that these strategies arise when awareness isn't strong enough, right? So remember that these are less efficient. They're, in a way, more dangerous because they have side. They can have side effects if not done skillfully. And so you're pointing out exactly what can happen. This can slide into aversion. But what, what we're trying to do is not push out the old peg, but we're trying to bring in the new peg. That's where the emphasis is on. So like if you're dealing with a lot of aversion, we try to bring in loving kindness or compassion. But we don't bring it in to push the aversion out. We bring it in because it's wholesome to bring it in. But you see, what you're pointing out is it's very easy for that to slide in to like, I'm pushing out the aversion by reflecting on loving-kindness. So I was talking about attraction and bringing in permanence in, but we can do the same thing with aversion. What's the opposite of aversion? Well, it's loving-kindness or compassion. So we can bring that in. And it has to be done skillfully by focusing on the loving-kindness. If we're focusing on getting rid of the aversion, that's aversion. Even if we're bringing loving-kindness in to get rid of the aversion, if the focus is on getting rid of the aversion, it's aversion. It's aversion meeting aversion, which is aversion. <laughs> uh huh. Maria? How so? Mm-hmm. One would want to sort of not be subject to them. 
Her homework as human being oh, okay. <laughs> to figure out how to do how to how to be a healthy, productive human being in the world without suffering, without suffering from these five hindrances or from self-centered, self-centered suffering. How to do that? Pardon me. Right, but you have, but, 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 but just don't, ass, don't assume you're not suffering until you look. Because we might, people might casually say that I've lived my 48 years and I haven't really suffered, but that doesn't mean they haven't suffered. Just because people don't know they're suffering doesn't mean they're not suffering. They just, they may be conditioned to the experience of suffering and this is like normal. For them. The burdensomeness of life is just the normal experience. And that's one reason I, I, I had alarmed that some people, including myself in some areas, tend to be almost compulsively self-denying. Um, so it's not a problem when you go to the exercise. Oh, boy, how, you know, a hot fudge Sunday. You know, it's not hard for me to think of the problem. It's not so much, it's about the mental torment. It's not about whether you have a hot fudge Sunday or not. Okay. So, this is the important, this is what we're trying to understand. Uh, we're making effort to purify the mind of what? Of suffering. We're not making effort to purify the mind of the bad thoughts. We're making effort to purify the mind of the experience of suffering. So it's that burdensomeness that we're, we're attempting to understand in order to be free of it. And everybody has that incentive to do that. You know, we all have this incentive to realize a, a way of being, a human being, without this unnecessary burden, this unnecessary mental torment or struggling. So we're, we are uh, only um, looking at where there is torment, where there's suffering, right? And so that the nice thing about uh, it's so important that we understand this point. 
because if we don't begin with suffering, then what that means, that all of our actions then, if it's not flowing from this understanding, there is suffering here and now in this heart. If, it's, if we're not there, then what we're doing is we're uh, practicing with idealism. It's like we have this ideal of who Mark is. It's an abstraction. It's an, a concept. And I'm trying to get there. So the thing about identifying in the moment suffering, whether it's just the subtle tinge of aversion or impatience or boredom in the mind, or the subtle tinge of restlessness in the mind, even though it may be very subtle, if we start there and we look at the identification with that experience of restlessness or with that experience of aversion or boredom, if we look at that, then whatever we discover will be practical and useful. If we discover that if I relate to that boredom in this way, it gets stronger, the suffering gets heavier, that's really good information. If I relate in another way and that suffering, that burdensomeness evaporates, that's really good information to see that causality, to see how what was a burden, boredom, you know, I'm feeling bored and I'm burdened by the boredom, and all of a sudden it's not there anymore. And if I had enough clarity to actually see how it was there and then wasn't there and what the supporting causes were for that passing away, that's really good. So the practice has to be practical this way, not idealistic. So the, the first step, of course, is we have to know what suffering is and be able to identify it, not conceptually, but moment by moment, because that's always where our practice begins. We begin with the experience of burdensomeness, of feeling weighed down in a, any given moment of our life. And then that's where we bring awareness with the intention to understand how it is in the sense of how it comes to be and how it goes away. And the Buddha says, don't worry about anything else but that. That's the Four Noble Truths. And he says, I know a lot. I can teach you a lot. But I only teach one thing. I teach about suffering, how it comes to be, and how it passes away. That's all I teach. And so we want to stay focused there. And that really helps us then answer your question, which is how to be a human being, you know, and how to relate to other people and to relate to sexuality and to relate to um, the desire to do good and, to, and the desire to take care of my family, my community, this planet, this universe, you know, which is a natural, those are natural forces in our heart and mind. The desire is a natural part of the universe. It's not a bad thing, desire. But when desire is combined with self-centeredness or self-centered delusion, it's a pretty dangerous thing. Because then the, this energy of desire is combined with this delusion that I'm apart from everything else. And then our actions are about protecting me or my nation or my family to the exclusion of everything else and things get messy. So I want to cover a few of the other ones on the list. So there are five strategies. The first one is substitution. And so we're substituting the opposite of what we're feeling burdened by. And then the next one, after when substitution doesn't work, so then the Buddha says he should scrutinize the drawbacks of those thoughts. So we're still caught in aversion or still caught in craving, even though we tried to substitute in the opposite. 
Like if we're caught up in craving, we try to bring in impermanence or try to bring in the characteristics that we weren't paying attention to to balance it out, but still we're caught, then we should scrutinize the drawbacks of this identification with the craving. This, this sort of story we have that if I could only get this, I would be happy. So we look at that and in a way we feel, we can feel a, whole, a wholesome regret like this is really yucky. This is uh, humiliating in a way to be caught in something so shallow. I mean, this is how I might, just to sort of see how, how uh, inhumane in a way this kind of thinking is, this sort of obsessing is. So we want to see it objectively and be repulsed. And the image the Buddha used was very graphic. It's like having a dead dog or a dead snake uh, wrapped around us. Just like we would be repulsed by that, we should be repulsed when the mind is attached and obsessing and caught up in various unwholesome mind states. And then we can look at it. So again, you can really see how this gets more dangerous as we move from these strategies. Like This could really fall into self-hatred. I am such a jerk. I'll always be a jerk. I'll never, you know, and we could just start to spin that way. But if the alternative is to just continue with the craving or with the aversion and never getting free of it, it may be worth attempting these more intrusive strategies. So that's the next strategy. The strategy after that is to ignore it, to divert our attention away. You know, to kind of go clean the bathroom if you're, you know, finding that all you're doing is worrying about the war. You know, shut the radio off and go clean the bathroom. Take your mind off of it. Give yourself something neutral to distract yourself with. Right? And you, again, this could slide into uh, what you were saying, you know, like a kind of aversion. I'm afraid of thinking that. So I'm going to, but if it's just going to continue spinning, it might be, worth the while to try to distract yourself from what's clearly unwholesome. And then if that doesn't work, the next most intrusive, the next step up in terms of intrusiveness is to, okay, I can't get beyond this stupid, bad thought. I'm going to investigate it. Not that you would say that. but And the, the Buddha gives a very interesting image. He says something like, just as a person would notice that they're running, the thought might arise, well, maybe I could just walk. And then the person seeing that they're walking would notice, well, maybe I can just stand here. And then the person who's just standing there might notice, well, maybe I can sit down. And the sitting person might notice, well, maybe I can lie down. That's how he described the kind of investigation. So it's a tracing back of causes. So if, you're, if we're obsessing with craving, let's say, caught up, if only, then I'll be happy. Then we might just sort of notice the craving, like notice the busyness of the craving in the mind. And just kind of see, well, what's feeding that craving? And then maybe there's a there's a feeling of, of like, uh, not being cared for in life. Like we want this recognition because we don't feel like anybody loves, nobody loves us. No one cares for me. I'm all alone. So then we look at that. That's like going from running to walking. Then we look at that feeling, nobody loves me. And then 
then if we look at that, we might notice, oh, there's some real deep sadness there. So we look at that. And then maybe after, if, after being with the sadness, we notice a kind of deep existential fear like, am I real? Who am I? Just this deep. And so we're sort of tracing back. Now, this kind of investigation has its own sort of shadows where we could just spin off into thinking. So we have to stay connected to the experience, going from the gross experience to the more subtle experience, tracing it back from the most obvious and then following the causes, following the dots almost back to the most subtle cause. And then if that doesn't work, the Buddha says we should take a wholesome thought and use it to beat down the unwholesome thought. Just like a strong person would grab a weaker person and throw them down. It's interesting. Thich Nhat Hanh says, <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh is great. He is, from my perspective, completely fearless about rewriting things that don't make sense to him. <laughs> it's like he shocks some people because he completely rewrote the Vinyaya, the monastic code for his monks and nuns. Um, because he thought, well, it's a different time, and the Buddha said that uh, that it's important to keep the major rules, but the minor rules you don't need to worry about. But they forgot to ask him what the major rules were and the minor ones. So, so especially in the Theravada tradition, they've kept all the rules. And of course, as civilization has changed, some of the rules are kind of silly now. So Thich Nhat Hanh rewrote them. But with this sutta, he said. I don't, and I don't think he has sort of academic reasons for saying this, but he says that the Buddha didn't mean you should beat down the unwholesome thought with a wholesome thought. He says, somebody put that in there. <laughs> and of course, it's entirely possible. But I think it's good also just to keep open to the fact that maybe it's supposed to be there. And the way I interpret that is when we're caught in something to us that's clearly unwholesome, meaning it's leading towards suffering for ourselves and for others, then we should do something. The last thing we want to do is to be helpless, is to just give in to it. So we should do what's most effective, which generally, in terms of this spiritual tradition, what's most effective is the most subtle, which is just awareness. And when that doesn't work, we practice substitution. And when that doesn't work, we practice seeing, scrutinizing the unwholesomeness of it. When that doesn't work, we can distract ourselves in a wholesome, relatively wholesome way from it, avert our attention. If that doesn't work, we can investigate and trace back the causes from gross to subtle. If that doesn't work, we just take some wholesome thought and we <coughs> wrestle with the unwholesomeness. We sort of... Uh, this is more, I think, what you were saying in the beginning about where we would force out. So we're actually intentionally trying to get rid of the unwholesome using something that's more wholesome, forcing it out. Suppression. So that suppression is slightly better than letting ourselves be swept away by unwholesome thinking. And we can just see for ourselves. You can experiment letting yourself be swept away and then a couple decades later, <laughs> assess whether that was the right thing to do. And then the next time, try beating down. You know, if the other strategies don't work. And maybe next week, somebody will be able to report back about 
seen that sometimes that's a useful strategy. I think I've actually used that strategy sometimes. Like, uh, I think even uh, even the sort of stereotypic pleading with God, you know, that, that sort of thing we hear, that's a little bit that last strategy where we're sort of... Uh, that God step in or that some beneficent power step in and protect us. Um, in a way is imposing, pushing out that that addictive or obsessive, unproductive, unwholesome mind state by bringing something in that's maybe more wholesome, even if it's not pretty, and even even if it's not more whole, uh, perfectly wholesome, it it does it can break a really unwholesome pattern. So we don't have a lot of time, but there's uh, about five or six minutes if people have any questions or would like to share from your own practice. And I encourage you just to experiment with these five strategies before you're really caught up. Just explore them in the next week. And uh, we'll talk more about them next week. But any thoughts now or questions that you might have? that you guys don't have any distracting thoughts <laughs> how do you work with your when you have thoughts that to you seem unwholesome how, what has been effective for you productive for you mm-hmm. Greg um, I have conflicts with people at work especially people above me um, I just notice feeling resistant to them and just raise the possibility in my own mind That's right. That it's probably a lot of that first strategy of of substituting the very narrow, focused story: "You're bad, not treating me right," and uh, bringing in something else. And and you can see how wholesome that is because to do that, it takes understanding. It takes this perspective. So. What we're actually substituting, in terms of just that phrase, substituting, what we're substituting is closed-mindedness with open-mindedness, or delusion, because delusion, the delusion there is that this is the whole story, right? Like when we're locked in conflict, we're deluded thinking this is the whole story. I've got all the facts. And then the wisdom that we substitute in is, oh, what about, what about this? 
Any other examples people have? Kara. Were you, were you really clear about the unwholesomeness of your attachment to the cat? See, that, that goes back to what I was saying in response to Maria. It's really important that we see the suffering. And it might be that your strategy didn't work because you weren't really connected. Maybe there wasn't any suffering there. Or if there was, that you weren't really connected to the suffering involved. Yeah, so maybe it wasn't suffering. So that's why it's really important that our work arise from the experience of suffering. Because otherwise it's like we're shooting in the dark. It's like we're, we've got strategies, but they're not addressing the problem. I love this in meetings when someone says, now what's the problem we're trying to solve? Because it really focuses us. And we can do that in terms of our spiritual life. What is the problem we're trying to solve? Human suffering is the problem we're trying to solve. And we... Yeah, it sounded like you were intimate with the experience of suffering when you brought, when you decided to remember these other pieces that you weren't remembering. Yeah, thanks for that example. Maybe time for one more. Somebody has a quick thought. Sure. It's a very important point, and it and again it goes back to my response to Maria, which is our practice always has to go from the conceptual. Like here we're talking, we're using concepts and language, and it it th- these concepts, these models are only useful if they are applied pragmatically to our experience. So wholesomeness and unwholesomeness is defined by. Unwholesome is what leads to su- the experience of suffering. Wholesome is what leads to the experience of non-suffering for self and others. So we just, it just has to be defined that way. And if we abstract it as a, as a concept, 
and it sort of place it on the world, on our experience of the world. Yeah, it gets. It's then it's something to defend, and it's something to argue about, and it's not very useful. So, the practice is psychologically based in the sense that this is our working ground right here, our experience. We could say our heart, but again, and not as a concept, but the heart being the place where we experience suffering or the absence of suffering, and that's the working ground. And so, everything we talk about is really defined in terms of how it how uh, how it affects or how it relates to our experience. And so we try to define terms according to that. So wholesome is what leads to the experience here in the heart of happiness. And unwholesome is what leads to the experience of suffering, feeling burdened or stressed or weighed down by life or by experience. It has to be quick though, Tara. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's definitely subjective. Yeah, the experience of suffering is subjective. So the resolution of suffering is also subjective. That's a whole other discussion, and it brings up a lot. But the Buddha is talking about the problem. This is the problem the Buddha is solving. He's 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 attempting to address. The problem of uh, suffering in a human heart. That's what he's attempting to address. And to the degree that it addresses uh, sort of uh, our ideas of like global suffering or injustice in society, I think it does address that personally. But he's entirely focused on the experience, the problem of human suffering, of an individual suffering. And how individuals can address their experience of suffering. That's my understanding, at least. And we have to leave it there now. But we'll pick it up next week. So please bring your experiences next week. I'll set more time aside so we can discuss more how these strategies have worked in your life, how you, how, how you've modified them creatively so that they're more useful, or relanguaged them so they make better sense to you. So all of that is useful to share with the group. But let's take a few seconds now and just let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.